Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the cross-hemisphere film review podcast with me, Dan, feeling like I live at work right now in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, feeling like I work at Hogwarts in Cambridge, UK. Ah. In this podcast, we discuss fantastical films, sci-fi, horror and fantasy because thinking about solar catastrophes, god complex murderers and fabulous golden spacesuits is far more interesting than staring at a computer screen every day. (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) Hi, Conrad. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? (laughs) Very well. Just surviving. Uh, from work, but uh, I do feel I get some sleep at least. Yeah, you've got lots of projects right now. Yeah, I'm working on two TV shows at the moment. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Oh, it's the start of term for me right now. So yeah, everything's a bit crazy for me too. We've got thousands of new undergraduates who are all pretty confused. So lots of work to do. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Happens every year. (laughs) But I've been having some fun in the interim as well. Last weekend, I went to see The Empire Strikes Back with live orchestral accompaniment in the Royal Albert Hall, which was amazing. Wow. With the screening of the entire (laughs) film? It was, yeah. The entire movie being projected onto a screen and it looked amazing and the orchestra was playing the music live. It was incredible. I think (laughs) the tone for the evening was set right from the outset when the orchestra played the 20th Century Fox fanfare, oh. which no, <laughs> nobody was expecting. So everybody cheered and gave them a standing <laughs> ovation just for that. And it was quite sort of audience participatory as, okay. as the evening went on. So right. like when Leia went in to kiss Luke, somebody shouted, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. But it was a really great evening. It was weird because sometimes you forgot the orchestra were there and the music would start up in the movie and you'd think, oh, yeah, the score's loud. And you'd look and think, oh, no, it's because they're there. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, incredible. So, Conrad, anything uh, in the mailbag today? Yes, we had lots of feedback on Ginger Snaps, ranging from Surge of Cold Crush Pictures. Hello, Surge. (laughs) Hello, Surge. Who said, man, I wanted to like Ginger Snaps, especially after the glowing review it got from Movie Oubliette. Alas, I did not. No. It's got all the ingredients of a film I'd like, a mix of practical magic and carry with werewolves, but I absolutely... Absolutely hated the two protagonists. No. They're the bullies. (laughs) Wow. Mm. Shocked. We've never disappointed Surge before. It might be the start. (laughs) (laughs) This is the beginning of the end. (laughs) But yeah, so we went from that to sort of lukewarm, like Chrissy, who said, I remember this film. Kind of loved it. Oh, yes. All the way to uh, Richard Stark, I love this movie. Mark Flatter's. Love this film, still have my DVD of it from years ago. A round of applause emojis from Bridget Fitzgerald herself, which <laughs> yeah. was quite surprising. <laughs> the fictional character from Ginger Snaps, yes. <laughs> yes, on Twitter, bizarrely enough. Uh, Spit and Polish said, I want a whole movie about the mum starting up an online course teaching young women about menstruation. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there'll be a lot of craft in that as well. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Accessorizing too, yeah. And Finding the Dots said, it's the movie where guys finally get the graphic description of how periods work. Mm. And boy, do they. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
And Chris Case said it also does using a werewolf as a metaphor for puberty the right way. The 80s teen wolf kind of disappointed me in uh, that regard. Agreed. I, yeah, really agree with that. Mm. Lots of feedback. And we did get retweeted by the uh, the writer as well, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. And by Catherine Isabel too. So yeah, it got a lot of attention, which was really exciting. Mm, so good. So I hope we can do as well this week. And one thing that might help us is that we have a guest. And who is it? <laughs> yes, our guest today is a fellow alumni of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's hit record production company and a hugely talented photographer, editor, filmmaker, co-host of the endearing YouTube cooking channels, siblings and spatulas, and most vitally for today's proceedings, an insightful and entertaining blogger on all things cinema. Please welcome Isaac Sutton. Thanks for having me on, (laughs) y'all. It's really exciting to have you here because we've collaborated on multiple projects on Hit Record before, but mm. never actually spoken. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. it's it, this is a it's a great. I feel like I've known you guys without knowing you for years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I feel the same as well. Uh, I love your YouTube channel with your video essays on numerous film and 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 television topics. It's great. Ah, thanks. I appreciate that. So, Isaac, you picked the film today. Would you like to do the honors of retrieving it? Oh, yeah. Let me uh, let me go ahead and open up this sucker. Ugh, the door's heavy. Jeez. Why, why is it in this deep blue liquid? Okay. Oh, oh my God. Yo, my hand. Wow, you guys really don't like these movies. Got to keep them contained, yeah. Just close it quick. Okay, so what have you got for us today? So uh, it looks like today we're going to be watching Sunshine from 2007. Ooh. Oh, yeah, I've seen that movie. Uh, I think that's the one that's set in the future in 2057. Our son is dying, and after a failed mission, Icarus 1, to restart it, a second attempt, Icarus 2, is underway as a crew of seven ethnically diverse scientists and engineers travel across space with a bomb the size of Manhattan strapped to their ship. But as with all space movies, things don't go quite to plan as they shockingly discover the first spaceship, Icarus 1, still intact and the possibility of a lone survivor. Mm-hmm. Will the crew manage to restart the sun or is humankind destined for darkness? <gasps> Thrills and chills. Well, we'll find out after the break. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. We're discussing Sunshine, the 2007 science fiction thriller directed by Danny Boyle here with your hosts and special guest Isaac Sutton. Isaac, you chose this film for us. Why did you do so? (laughs) So a few months back, I got randomly selected from the Wheel of Fate Mm -hmm. and I... uh, called out for y'all to do Push, which also stars Chris Evans. Ah, yeah. And uh, I just thought it'd be fun to, like, stay on that same train. (laughs) Ah, Chris Evans train. But uh, when this movie came out, I was 11 years old. So I saw this movie, like, way, way after the fact, mostly through my friend Chad, who is a massive Danny Boyle acolyte, Mm -hmm. uh, loves all his movies, specifically train spotting. And then I also watched this YouTube channel called Movies with Mikey, which Mm. recommended the film. So I decided to check it out, and I thought it was really bizarre (laughs) on every level. Yeah, it is. It's surprising. It bombed pretty hard when it first came out. Considering Danny Boyle's previous film with Killian Murphy, who is also in this movie, and was 28 Days Later, which kind of reinvented the whole zombie genre. It came right before the Dawn of the Dead remake by Zack Snyder, and then, of course, the Walking Dead series. So I kind of feel like it's not too big a claim to say that it kick-started that whole thing off again. Mm. So he gets a slightly bigger budget, but still small enough, 40 million, for him to be able to cast it the way he wanted and keep it under control and tries to reinvent intellectual sci-fi. And I think it did like $3 million 
dollars in America Whoa. at the time. It bombed really badly. Oh, yeah. It was a rough one for Danny. Mm. <laughs> but I still saw it. You saw it as well, haven't you, Dan? I didn't see it at theatres, but uh, I watched it on DVD. <laughs> Maybe it, but yeah, I'm definitely a huge Danny Boyle fan. This is his only foray into sci-fi, I believe. Well, apparently no, because he did have an earlier foray into sci-fi. He directed a comedy sci-fi short called Alien Love Triangle, starring Kenneth Branagh, Courtney Cox and Heather Graham in 1999. Wow. Which was intended to be one third of a portmanteau movie, but the other two ideas turned into features. Guillermo del Toro's Mimic ah. and Gary Fleeder's Imposter. Ah. So this little piece just disappeared into the ether. I think it's been shown once at a film festival. Ah. Other than that, nobody's ever seen it. Oh, okay. Release the tapes, Danny Boyle. I want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's crazy. The mind boggles. This is a little bit more grounded and serious than Alien Love Triangle. Yeah, I did read as well that um, after making this film, Danny Boyle swore not to make another sci-fi because it was a big headache apparently (laughs) yeah I think like Clint Eastwood he found the whole experience incredibly tiresome particularly getting people up on wires and trying to get the whole weightless thing going Mm. on Mm. I think it was in post-production for a year wow well and it shows too though I mean the movie is freaking gorgeous it's just a wonder to look at even (laughs) over 10 years later the special effects really hold up I think Mm. The one scene that immediately sort of comes to mind is when they're watching Mars pass by the sun. And it's just sort of like this glorious masterpiece. It's like watching a painting, which I know Mm. is such a cliche way to describe it, but it's absolutely ridiculous. Mm. You can tell that he has a really strong visual sense throughout the whole movie he's Mm. like using circles constantly Mm. to just sort of replicate the sun in every single which way in the corridors in people's eyes yes (laughs) you know the work that he does with color (laughs) you know it's the cinematographer and danny boyle Mm. it seemed like they carried their relationship over from 28 days later yeah you know 28 days later so gritty and so like purposefully unpolished and Mm. to go from that to a movie like sunshine which is just jaw-dropping like in 2019 Mm. (laughs) jaw-dropping i think is really something special to say there's something to say about that for sure i would like to counter your argument about the visual effects all the solar stuff amazing it just wow incredible especially all the sun flares and that final scene with the whole chamber igniting oh incredible but i found all the exterior shots of the spaceship ah didn't quite work for me Mm -hmm. they did look a little dated it kind of reminds me of the movie event horizon which is an incredible (laughs) film but then all the cgi effects of the spaceship are just like (laughs) just a bit disappointing (laughs) fair enough fair enough yeah i can see it Uh, i would also like to point out this movie's interpretation of a spaceship it is different to other previous films in terms of it's not super polished and sterile looking Mm -hmm. like everything kind of looks a bit shit and (laughs) everything's kind of cluttered and things are a lot smaller than they should be and it's i guess similar to stuff like alien but it had a much more grittier look Mm. yeah this one didn't look grungy it looked used yeah Yeah. like an apollo thing yeah 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 for sure very much influenced by real nasa footage i think so it's Ah. practical while still projecting into the future somewhat. So like the oxygen garden that they have on there, which is something that NASA told them, this is how we would generate oxygen for long flights, is uh-huh. we would have a garden in there. But that's something we I don't think we've ever seen before. I guess you have silent running, but I don't think the garden was there to generate oxygen. I think it was just the whole thing was the garden, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. <laughs> I haven't seen it for years. <laughs> But yeah, I, the visual style of the sun itself was 
amazing. Like, especially all the scenes in the observation rooms where they're basking in the sun and they've got the, the sun filter on the window. I think the character Searle says to Icarus, like, put it up to 4%. And then she's like, no, I can only put it up to 3.1%. And you think, oh, what's that going to be? And it's just blinding, <laughs> like <laughs> blistering. <laughs> um, so bright that the screen is just mainly white mm. or yellow. It feels so immersive as well in those scenes. They really did an amazing job in terms of visualizing the sun. Yes. The DP, Alvin Kirshner, took an interesting approach. He shot using anamorphic lenses for inside the spaceship so that he would get the elongated lens flares that you associate with classic sci-fi from the 70s and earlier. But for all of the shots of the sun, they used standard 35 so that all of the lens flares would all be perfectly circular. Ah. As Isaac said, it's circles everywhere. But also they took so much careful attention to colour, like there is no red or yellow inside the spaceship. Ah. So that every time you cut outside and see the sun, all of a sudden you're hit with yellow and it really has an impact. Mm. Yeah. It's just so carefully planned. Even the spacesuits, which are gold, you don't see the outside of the spacesuits until they're outside. Mm. Yeah. They're very careful about showing you inside the helmet and how claustrophobic it is, mm. but they don't show you the full gold glory of the spangly spacesuits until they're outdoors, <laughs> which is... Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, those spacesuits are a treat, man. Absolutely gorgeous. Very like Andromeda strain. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the time watching it, when it came out, I don't think I knew anyone from the cast. Mm. But I've noticed now that there are a lot of uh, Marvel characters in this movie. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, we have Chris Evans, uh, Captain America. Mm-hmm. We have Rose Byrne, who was from the sort of resurgence of X-Men movies oh. as uh, Moira McTaggart. Benedict Wong is from Doctor Strange. And then Michelle Yeoh was from Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Uh, and we've also got some DC characters in there. Killian Murphy as Scarecrow from Batman Begins. And also Mark Strong is in the new Shazam movie. Mm, missed that one. So, yeah, I, I feel like at this stage, it's it's almost like, who isn't in a Marvel or DC movie? <laughs> well, so Jake Gyllenhaal was a famous holdout for a very long time, but he, he's popped his cherry now too. <laughs> yeah, that's it's true. true. It's so true. Also, it was worth mentioning Cliff Curtis, who is renowned in New Zealand as a New Zealand actor. Most famous from New Zealand films like Once Were Warriors, Well Rider, and River Queen. Mm. I love it that he, because his ethnicity in New Zealand, he's a, of indigenous Maori descent. So in the rest of the world, that's a very ambiguous ethnicity. So he, he always plays like either a Mexican or a Latino, or he's played a black guy before. And in this movie, I guess he's American. I'm not entirely sure, but um, it makes me laugh. The range of <laughs> nationalities he plays. <laughs> Yeah, they just uncreative people just don't know exactly what to do with him, even though he's a fantastic actor. So they just throw him wherever they can. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And also, uh, referencing back to Push, he's also in Push. Yeah, as well. yeah. So uh, good to see him again. Yeah. And what nationality is Mark Strong supposed to be in this movie? Monster. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> Mc, just Bernie McBurn face. <laughs> just evil. Yeah. Evil. <laughs> his own ethnicity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in this film, so he plays the character that they discover still surviving on Icarus 1, but they never show his face, really. So it's always this big blur of, I don't even know how they managed to do that. Every time his character is on screen, you can't really make out his face it's yeah. just kind of burny it's the whole eye thing you can see just the one eye mm. i thought that approach was kind of good it kind of made him into a character that wasn't human because you couldn't see him really yeah yeah doesn't make it a great entry for his show reel. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> here's my eye and here's just a whole bunch of blurry yeah uh, i listened to the director's commentary and danny boyle said that they got that weird blurry thing by using two different cameras oh. uh, like just on a rig then layering the footage together and it looks really i, I haven't seen anything really a lot like that 
generally when it's like weird blurry whatever they just kind of toss some cgi on that sucker but they actually used it in the lenses which i thought was impressive and it did make him feel sort of like otherworldly almost Mm, but was it a hundred percent effective in the end i don't want to make that claim (laughs) (laughs) no i have a counter argument the whole figure of pinbacker who was the captain of the previous icarus Mm. which failed on its mission and nobody knows why and then they get a mysterious distress signal and they investigate and it sort of throws the whole mission into disarray as a result. So this guy, the first time you see him, he really shouldn't be alive. It's been, what, seven years or something? Yeah. When somebody first comes across him, he's in the sort of observation lounge with the sun outside the window and you can't quite see him and it's got the weird distortion effects and it's like, am I going crazy? Is this guy really here? Am I imagining it? Is he a physical thing? Has he turned into something else? Mm. Yeah, so it's kind of effective there. But then as the film progresses and he's still sort of blurry, even in the finale when he's fighting with Cassie and it's so confusing that you can't even tell what's happening from one shot to the next or where he is in relation to her or who's touching who. I don't even know if she survived. (laughs) I couldn't figure it out at all. My general feeling of it was... The third act of this movie just feels as though they just couldn't decide where to go. So they thought, oh, let's just do the finale of Event Horizon with burnt Sam Neill. But we're kind of embarrassed about it. So we'll just half close our eyelids and hope that people don't notice that's what's happening. (laughs) If you squint your eyes, it's artier than Event Horizon. Mm, Okay. (laughs) Man. Yeah. yeah. I'm just so disappointed with the third act of this movie. Oh, well, I actually love the third act. I oh. think the third act injects a lot of energy into the film and it completely switches up the genre of the film as well because mm. it was a sci-fi film and then as soon as the pinbacker character is introduced, it's a horror. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I felt like the suspense was really built up because of that. But I felt that his character wasn't explored as much. Mm. I felt like his backstory wasn't really there Mm. he didn't even have that much screen time and that last scene was a bit anticlimactic with his arm skin just getting ripped off and then him just standing there (laughs) (laughs) I don't know (laughs) so I like Pinbacker right but I have problems with Pinbacker Uh (laughs) because I think he works thematically but I don't think he necessarily works within the actual plot very well it Mm. does feel sort of shoehorned in like the tone does take this like hard shift it does because it's about sort of like science and like its relationship to the unknown and god and all this stuff this like crazy otherworldly like bigger than existence character it does work for me in the end Mm -hmm. but at the same time i don't think that they necessarily give that concept enough tongue-in-cheekness to introduce an actual monster and make it feel like it's a real part of the movie it Mm -hmm. feels like two different movies yeah uh it's 100 super easy to be divided on yeah i was doing a bunch of research for this and quentin tarantino showed it i guess at his own little movie thing the new beverly Uh he like owns a movie theater in los angeles and they uploaded his take on it online and uh he says it takes a creative nosedive in the third act and he said he felt betrayed at the end uh so you know i wouldn't go that far but i do see why people would have problems with it and i sympathize even though i still love it yeah (laughs) yeah I think you're right. I mean, thematically, he represents fundamentalism, doesn't he? Because the essence of the film philosophically is fatalism versus self-determinism. So you have, should man just let the sun burn out and accept his fate in the place of the universe because we're so inconsequential, insignificant? Mm -hmm. Or should we intervene through our own scientific abilities and artificially extend our existence in the universe? And then you have this fundamentalist figure who saying, how dare you? Mm. I have been communing with God alone for seven years. (laughs) And... I poo-poo your attempts. And so he sort of stabs people and runs around looking like Freddy Krueger. And thematically, you're right. It's of a piece, but 
the execution of it, I just thought was terrible. And it's such a shame because the rest of the movie keeps bumping into Alien mm. right at the very get-go. You've got the crew having breakfast around a table and the camera sort of mm. going round all of them as they're introducing themselves and whining about their working conditions. And you think, <laughs> okay, so it's Alien. Mm. You have a soothing female computer voice. You have toys on wires and springs bobbing up and down to show the juddering of the ship because mm. Danny Boyle suddenly realised that's why Ridley Scott did it because otherwise you can't tell that there's anything going on. Uh-huh. Long corridors with cameras drifting yeah. along them, investigating unanticipated distress signals. I mean, it's all there. And at the point where they investigate the spaceship, they make a joke of it. They're talking yeah. about separating and... The guy that's sort of played by Troy Garrity, Ross Geller in space, I call him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's sort of saying, this is a really bad idea. And Chris Evans makes fun of him and says, you know, yeah, because we might all be picked off one by one by aliens. Mm. And so they all accept that this is ridiculous, that we're in a serious science fiction movie and they go off and investigate. But then they have the finale from Event Horizon show up. Mm. I don't know. I have the same feeling about 28 Days Later, actually. I don't like what happens in the third act of that movie either. Although Mm. I accept it as an exciting way to finish the story. Yeah, I mean, I read, not sure whether this is true. So Alex Garland is a writer of this film. Mm. This is the third movie that he's worked with Danny Boyle. He worked on The Beach and 28 Days Later. I heard that in the original screenplay, there was much more religious stuff in the film and Danny Ball downplayed that a lot more. Mm. I think if they'd kept all that stuff in, the introduction of Pinbacker would have made more sense. Mm. But because there wasn't as much talk about religion and existential sort of ideas, his introduction was a bit strange Mm. and like a definite tonal shift. It was kind of hinted at, like you could kind of interpret this film as the sun being God and Mm. the death of God. Searle's character always wanting to bask in in the sun in the observation room and and when Kaneda dies the sun engulfs him and Searle's like what do you see what do you see you know Mm. I think it's kind of hinted at but I felt like it was definitely downplayed Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And uh, Alex Garland, you know, he's constantly playing with those themes throughout his own movies. I mean, now he's a very accomplished director. He did Annihilation, Mm. which came out very recently with Natalie Portman. He did Ex Machina. Haven't seen that. (laughs) And those movies are also very sort of like ethereal, Mm. you know, sci-fi trips with lots of like psychology and talking about higher powers in them as well. Mm. So I can definitely see see this movie sort of being written to be very third act focused and then manipulated to be more like Alien because you really love Alien. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's a shame because in Alex Garland's own movies, the third act is exciting but still much more consistent with the tone and style of the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. The ending of Annihilation is thrilling and terrifying but Mm -hmm. is so thematically driven. Yeah. It's Mm. incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Annihilation's fan-freaking-tastic. If Sunshine's not your jam, you should just watch that one instead. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's a lot of expectations in space movies now. There are a lot of groundwork in terms of how space movies should be. There's always a hologram room. Mm -hmm. There's always like an airlock. There's always like, don't go out into space because you'll turn into shards of ice. (laughs) There's always, you know, shields malfunctioning and zero gravity and, and stuff like that. So I do feel there's so much work that you have to do just to make a space movie these days. (laughs) In this movie, I think they tried to kind of limit the amount of zero gravity because it would have... Cost a fortune. Yeah. Mm. I think originally the spaceship was supposed to be rotating, but they just had no budget for it. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like with every great space movie, it sets up another bar, like, oh, now you have to have this. Mm. I feel like we're very spoilt as well. Like, the last great space movies, Martian, Interstellar, and Gravity, just... 
just ridiculous. Ad Astra could mm. never get there. Oh, <laughs> yes. I loved your review of Ad Astra, by the way. Thanks. <laughs> Terrible movie. I think, I think modern space movies and modern sci-fi, it's such a weird thing, right? Like you said, are these cliches at this point or are they genre conventions? You know yeah, what I mean? Mm, like, exactly. It's a really sort of weird line because I don't necessarily want to give up my long corridors. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I rather like like my holograms, uh, but it's a moment that I think Sunshine definitely falls into, and I wonder, like, in the future, what's going to be the next thing to, like, stop us from just constantly falling back to, like, these 1970s, 60s greats, you know, 2001, Alien, and, you know, mm-hmm. the other stuff that's not those, but really just 2001 and Alien. Let's get real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I mean, I'd like to put an argument that actually Sunshine, although it was not a big success, I think it's actually been quite influential. Because if you look at the state of science fiction in the noughties, oughties, I don't know what <laughs> we're supposed to call them, was- you had the rebirth of Star Wars and Star Trek and Men in Black and Terminator sequels <laughs> and Matrix sequels. It was all sci-fi fantasy. Mm. And then all of a sudden you have Sunshine dropping on you, which injects this indie sensibility this serious philosophical Mm. indie sensibility whilst also still being an exciting narrative and after that you get moon you get europa report gravity oblivion interstellar the martian first man and this year ad astra and i think all of them owe something to sunshine to be Mm, honest i can't think of another movie that really kicked off that super scientifically accurate whilst also drawing from uh, science fiction elements of the past. Yeah, I really do think it set a trend that although maybe the public didn't come out in droves to watch it, I think filmmakers mm. did. And yeah. I think they may have picked up a few things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, uh, Danny Brawl did consult a physicist, right, for this film. Yeah, Dr. Brian Cox. Yeah. So this guy works at CERN trying to discover the Higgs boson and also presents BBC documentaries and so on. And he just happens to be quite cheek bony, have long black hair and be quite dreamy. <laughs> oh, okay. um, so <laughs> when they're casting this movie and they want to put Killian Murphy in it, Danny Boyle's thinking, wow, can I really cast Killian Murphy as a physicist? And then he meets <laughs> Dr. Brian Cox and thinks, ah, yes, I can. <laughs> 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 because if you look at them, they're quite similar. It's amazing. Oh, interesting. <laughs> anyway, back to the influence of sunshine on modern science fiction. Yeah, I think that you're definitely catching on to something there. I think the music of this movie, you can see a lot of influences in Interstellar to the score of sunshine. Mm, um, okay. And in a lot of these movies, right, they're very twinkly, very pulsating, very like low tones, and then you just kick it toward orchestra or kick it to silence or kick it to whatever. Mm. And uh, Sunshine really understands a lot of those mechanics and you definitely do see it in other modern films. Mm. So this is a collaboration between John Murphy, mm-hmm. who'd worked with Danny Boyle on 28 Days Later mm-hmm. and Underworld, kind of a techno group, I guess you'd say. I thought it was just one guy. Actually. I was trying to figure out what the heck that was. <laughs> I googled multiple times and couldn't figure it out still. <laughs> it's so funny because Underworld was really big in the 90s. I guess my my generation. Yeah, they were on the soundtrack to Train Spotting, so their history goes way back. Yeah, huge techno group. Yeah, their tracks were big in the rave scene. A bit before my time, I guess, but definitely knew about them. But actually their involvement caused a huge problem because we didn't get a soundtrack album from this movie for quite some time because of some legal battle between John Murphy and Underworld and the production or something. Uh It took six or seven years before we got an iTunes digital only soundtrack and we haven't seen a CD since. So yeah, bit of a shame really. But groundbreaking in terms of its combination of electronics, guitar and good old fashioned big orchestral pieces. 
which hints towards the stuff that Hans Zimmer would be doing with Inception and Interstellar years later. Yeah, the movie did almost have a dancey vibe to it. Mm. It does have that kind of pulsating, sort of undulating sort of tone to it. Mm. Kind of similar, I guess, to Tron Legacy, Mm. Daft Punk's score. I really liked it, though, in terms of electronics. Like, it wasn't 60s sci-fi electronic music. It was was very, very modern and almost too subtle sometimes. Mm. Um, But I guess it left room for more visuals and sound design. For sure. Yeah, of course, until cut-rate, blurry, event horizon (laughs) finale turns up, in Uh which case they just stop... Hacking at violins with a chainsaw. Man, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Conrad>. terrible. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, man. But as well as that, we also get John Murphy's iconic piece of music, Adagio in D minor, mm. which has outlived the film. Yeah. It's just turned into one of those tracks that, like um, Bishop's Countdown from Aliens, which was on every single action movie trailer mm. for about 10, 15 years. Adagio in D minor was picked up and used extensively in Kick-Ass, which was another movie John Murphy worked on. And it's been in just countless ads and that particular chord progression. I don't know whether it has been used multiple times before then, but certainly it's been used multiple times since then. <laughs> it even crops up in Lord of the Rings. Hmm. I see why it has been so, like, memefied. That's not a word. <laughs> it should be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I've seen why it's been, like, taken by so many different people. It's a gorgeous little piece, I think. Like, it really does capture sort of this, like, epic vibe that comes with that finale and comes with the death scene, which I feel like are the two strongest scenes in the whole film, Mm. right? Is Kaneda's death and then Killian Murphy just staring into this bomb as stuff's go, I don't know, crazy sparkles. Goes boom. Yeah, Yeah, goes boom in the background. I mean, they really just sort of like emotionally hit me. Very, very cool sequences. But, I mean, they're also helped out by the acting, which is very, very strong. I mean, the the ensemble in this movie really pull something special, I think. Yes. The real ensemble, not Mr. Monster Man. Um, (laughs) We'll put him on the back burner, right? For the first two-thirds of this movie, the ensemble cast really unites to make... I I don't know, something that I haven't really seen before or since Mm. uh, in, like, modern cinema. Now it's time for Random Trivia! So, Dan, what green shoots of trivia have you discovered in the burned-out remnants of the Oxygen Garden for us today? (laughs) All right, so this trivia is about the sort of design of the ship. I've mentioned it before. Originally, they, they had sort of rotating parts of the ship so that they... It could create its its own gravity, similar to 2001 Space Odyssey, uh, but of course budget didn't allow for it. But originally, the Icarus One, when they go to investigate, it was supposed to have this malfunctioned gravity, so they were going to be walking on walls and the ceiling, which would have looked so cool. I wish they'd done that. Mm. Um, (laughs) But unfortunately, the budget didn't allow it. Uh, But for Icarus One... It is exactly the same set as Icarus 2, just covered in dust. Mm. (laughs) Yes, yes. And did you hear what the dust is made out of? No, like in the film it's supposed to be dead skin, right? Um, But what what, what was it actually made out of? So it's the same starchy flour that they use to stuff Cornish pasties, which is this meat pie that is indigenous to Cornwall in the UK. I love pasties. I love them. (laughs) Would you like to breathe them on set for days and days? Because the crew did not. Well, so it's some sort of flour. Yeah, it's sort of this starchy stuff that's that's technically edible. So they just sprinkled it liberally around the set and then just thought, hey, yeah, breathe this stuff. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, Cliff Curtis almost died in his death sequence because when they <laughs> started to shine the light, all of the dust blows up, and he had to like oh. have like multiple earplugs and nose plugs. Uh, otherwise, it would have gone all up in his system. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, <laughs> just add add some chopped carrots, and some peas. He's good to go. <laughs> 
<laughs> some ketchup. And that's our trivia. I would say Chris Evans was phenomenal in this movie. Like, even though his character isn't huge, he was just so good. Yeah. And compare it to Fantastic Four and Push, like, he really went a step above in his acting for this movie. Mm. Rose Byrne, also great Australian actress. I love her. She's great and insidious. (laughs) And, of course, Killian Murphy, is that how you pronounce his name? It is. I never knew that. I've always <laughs> pronounced it as Cillian Murphy. <laughs> oh, no, he's Cillian. Uh, yeah, they call him Kill on set on the making of. Ah, okay. Right. Yes, because he's got Irish descent. Is that right? Oh, yes. He's Irish through and through, yes. Cillian Murphy. Ah. Yeah, he's an amazing actor and he's got cheekbones to die for. I know, yes. <laughs> he's so humble and so low-key as well. He's not interested in fame and celebrity in the slightest and he often gets caught out like of course he was in the first Batman movie for Christopher Nolan Yes, and then when he was being interviewed about another film Mark Kermode asked him if he was going to be in the sequel and Killian Murphy's reply was I can't tell you that I've signed a non-disclosure agreement <laughs> which yeah. of course made it blatantly obvious that he was It's so good uh, He's such a sweet guy, but yeah, an incredible actor because he can go from somebody as lovable as Jim and somebody as intelligent and philosophical as Kappa in this movie Mm. to somebody as terrifying as the villain in the Wes Craven movie Red Eye, where his terribly blue eyes are terrifying. (laughs) Oh, right. I haven't seen um, that movie. So, yeah, it's a great cast. And I love the fact that there's so many Asian actors in the cast mm, because they yes. decided that in the future, space missions could only really be funded by Asian economies. So you've got Benedict Wong and Michelle Yeoh and mm. Hiroyuki Sanada in the cast. And they're all fantastic actors that yeah, I've loved so in other movies too. Yeah, yeah and Michelle Yeoh and uh, Chris Evans have such an amazing rapport <laughs> in this movie. They're so cheeky with each other mm. and like... I don't know. They feel like friends, uh, even though they only get like three scenes. And it's very sort of impressive, the relationship dynamics. Everybody in this movie weaves and just they don't talk a lot to each other. You know, they're very matter of fact. They're scientists. Mm. They're very practical people. Mm. But uh, it really does have this group dynamic. And I think that a lot of that can be owed to a lot of the Asian cast members, right? Benedict Wong Mm. rips his scene open. It is Mm. nasty. His just like emotional commitment and Hiroyuki Sonata in his death sequence is powerful. I mean, it is very impressive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with Benedict Wong scene. Like, you really feel his self-torture. So it's the scene where he he's done the calculations, but he's forgotten to take into account the shields or something. And so a big error happens, and he's like, "I fucked up. I fucked up." And it's, it's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking because yeah. he, he tried so hard, but um, and everybody just stares at him like, "Yeah, you did, man." Yeah. <laughs> like everybody, they can't console him. They have no time for it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so awful. Yeah, from my perspective, it perfectly captures the academic environment where there just isn't any time for that kind of error. Everybody is so intelligent and so focused on doing the best work at all times. Yes. And if you make a mistake... There's just no pity for it whatsoever. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I just realised that there are kind of similarities to this movie and Interstellar as well because they make a decision to go save mm. someone or like investigate the Icarus One mm. and that's also what happens in Interstellar where they go to that planet is that right and then yeah they go back and suddenly the guy on the spaceship is like 20 years older or something (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. the time manipulation on the different planet surfaces yeah Yeah. and then they uh they go to try and rescue matt damon and he's not a good man (laughs) and his name is man it's i love interstellar that movie's also very good Mm. if you don't like sunshine (laughs) you can go watch interstellar (laughs) 
I'm terrible. Whenever I watch Interstellar, I always fast forward to the point where they take off. Isn't that, isn't <laughs> oh, that bad? Okay. Dang. I'm just not interested in the family bickering in a dust storm for an hour. Uh, yes, <laughs> I just yes. like, come on, I want to go to alien planets with a big monolith robot. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, I guess. I'm such a Neanderthal. No, no. <laughs> if you're a Neanderthal, man, I'm not even evolved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, so many of these films are like that, though. I mean, it's a crew, a ship, and a signal, and somebody makes a terrible mistake by their humanity getting in the way of their mission. It's the same mm. thing over and over and over again in all of these movies. Yes. I mean, it even happens in Disney's Black Hole. It's the same story, just with different window dressing. And it's just mm. interesting to see what thematically what they do with it. And in this one, mm. it's fascinating, the whole science versus God dynamic. I wish actually they'd kept more of the spiritual element yeah. in it, because then it might have made more sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, going back to um, the actors and being ethnically diverse, I did notice, this is just an observation, that all the ethnic characters get killed off. <laughs> and it's, it's just the three remaining white people and another murderous white guy. Uh, so... <laughs> True, true. Michelle Yeoh makes it close. Yeah. She almost gets there. Ah, uh, almost. But not going to happen. Sorry. Always. No flying daggers. No, but she dies in a yoga pose, though. Which <laughs> yeah, is great. she does. <laughs> well, I took that to mean Pinbacker was, like, posing everybody in the sunshine room, right? Like, he killed everybody uh... and then shooted up the lights and then he posed Michelle Yeoh in that pose as well. That's, like, his modus operandi is to, like, pose people in weird yoga positions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, because there's this big debate about whether he killed Benedict Wong's character or whether Benedict Wong's character committed suicide. Yeah, I think that's a load of garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Benny Wong definitely killed himself in this movie. (laughs) There's no way he did it. Yeah. Come on, man. I'm with you on that one. He was so guilty. How Mm. could he not? (laughs) Yeah. I just don't see Pinbacker having that sound of mind. He's not even really a character. He's just like a force of nature in this movie. Yes. You know? So to have like this sort of like presence to be like, well, I'm going to stage this suicide. Mm. Right? And I've heard this take several times now. I just think it's silly. I don't understand it at all. (laughs) Yeah. Well, exactly. Because how could Pinbacker know the dynamics in terms of his state of mind either? He wasn't there. So I don't buy it. That's what Danny Boyle thinks. Danny, come on. I think he's wrong. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. Okay, listeners, I'm sure you are all in blistering solar anticipation for the Moobly Awards, where we nominate a number of our favourite parts of the film in a bunch of galactically apocalyptic categories. Best quote! Isaac, do you have a favourite quote from this movie? So, my favourite quote, I think, is when they're all talking about whether to go save the Icarus one or not, and... You know, it's getting really intense, all of this stuff, and and they're trying to figure out who's going to make the decision to go save the Icarus One or to go straight and continue on the mission. And they all just kind of turn and look at Killian Murphy's character, and he just goes, shit. (laughs) Like a really quiet voice. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, it's so good. It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. 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 Related to that one a lot. Sorry for cursing on a podcast, mom and dad. (laughs) It's allowed you're quoting somebody else. (laughs) So my favorite was, I think it's when they are trying to get back from Icarus 1 to Icarus 2 and the airlock has been blown and they have to uh, be manually shot out. And so Searle has nominated himself as he's kind of strapping Kappa up into the spacesuit, he says to Kappa, hey Kappa, we're only stardust. Mm. Yeah, it's a lovely moment of self-sacrifice, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah, and we are only stardust. Mm. 
Well, similarly, mine is quite profound, and it comes from my least favourite character, Pinbacker. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it's when they discover him in the observation room, and you can't quite see him, and he is doing his grand speech about, at the end of time, a moment will come when just one man remains, the last man, alone with God. Then the moment will pass, man will be gone, and there will be nothing to show that we were ever here. But stardust. Ah, so, yes. yeah, similar line. Most naughty's moment. My most naughty's moment is that weird techno green screen computer they have in, oh, in yeah. Kappa's Skype call. <laughs> <laughs> it's so matrixy, right? It's so it really matrix. is. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is the point of it? <laughs> Why not just have the wall? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Apparently when he was filming those scenes, Killian Murphy was actually just staring into a mirror and he hated it. Oh, right. I mean, I could stare into Killian Murphy's eyes for days. (laughs) 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 Apparently he's not quite so moved. So Mm, there we go. Uh, For me, it has to be the ecological disaster, which seemed to be really popular in the noughties. When you think about it, we had The Core in 2003, The Day After Tomorrow in 2004, Shyamalan's The Happening in 2008, 2012 in 2009. There were so many disastrous things happening to our planet Ah. that required some sort of futuristic technology and a little bit of self-sacrifice to put right. Loads of that in the noughties. Wow. Best hair or costume? We've talked about it before. My favourite is the spacesuits, which apparently the helmet of which was inspired by Kenny from South Park. Oh, right. (laughs) So when Kaneda dies, they should really shout, the sun killed Kaneda. (laughs) Bastards! (laughs) Oh, that's good. Um, I would have to agree, Conrad. Uh, Those fabulous spacesuits are my favourite as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're so spangly. They're gorgeous. I would would like to offer a counterpoint and say Chris Evans pre-shaving his whole face and head is bizarre to look at (laughs) and one of my favourite parts of this film. He's so shaggy and just like nasty looking. He doesn't even look like Chris Evans. Yeah. I I actually got confused watching the movie. I was like, is that a different character? When in yeah. shape. I was like, oh, it's Captain America. Favorite scene. I think uh Kaneda's death is probably my favorite scene in this movie. I mean, it's just mm. it's so cool. It's so good. There's so much happening in that sequence. You know, the oxygen garden's burning, Kaneda's looking into the sun. You have like this everybody's interacting while also being so separate. Um, Mm. And you never lose track of, like, what's going on. It's just a really well-done, thoughtful sequence, I think. Yeah, I'd agree. It's it's beautifully paced and edited, and the music going from the underworld-inflected, pulsing techno to the heart-wrenching, full orchestral Mm. adagio piece. Yeah, it's an incredible experience. That's the scene I most look forward to every time I revisit this movie. Mm. Most cliched sci-fi moment! Why is it... In all of these sci-fi films, there's always some sort of airlock that can only be operated manually by one person. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> I feel like it's in every single space movie these days. Oh, but yeah, true. that's <laughs> that's my cliche. <laughs> How about you, Isaac? What was your cliche for this film? I actually got a horror cliche. Oh, yeah. Um, Go for it. Ooh. When Pinbacker is chasing Rose Byrne's character up and down all these hallways and he traps her in the earth room, uh, he explodes <laughs> through the wall yeah. like in a Shining-esque fashion and just kind of wiggles <laughs> his arm around at her. I thought that was very uh, horror cliche. Yeah. Very Shining, very, you know. <laughs> just out of reach, boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's Pinbacker. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, mine was another sci-fi cliche, and that is, why is it in every sci-fi movie that when you deactivate a computer, its voice slows down like a turntable with your finger on the disc? (laughs) 
ever since Dave Bowman deactivated HAL in 2001, this has happened to every computer. Yeah, yeah. But it's so cool, comrade. Because <laughs> their voices are just spinning discs, right? Yeah. They're just vinyls just playing. <laughs> it's just samples on tape like a Mellotron. It's just like <laughs> slowing down. Favorite special effect. My favorite effect is actually from Canada's death scene. Oh, yeah. And it's sort of the penultimate shot before he's enveloped in light and destroyed forever. It's this shot of uh, like a wall of fire of light advancing mm. towards him and it's reflected in the shield that he's trying to repair. So it's sort of curving round. Yeah. Although the you say, Dan, that some of the CGI looks dated, some of it is just mind-boggling to look at still. Yeah. I think that's to do with how it was conceptual. Life. All the solar stuff, they definitely put all their money on all the solar yeah. stuff. Is amazing. Really cool. yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I already mentioned my favorite special effect was Mercury passing by the sun in, yes. in the observation room. Just they, mm. they really understand light in this movie in a way that a lot of movies don't when it comes to their CGI. You know, you watch mm -hmm. some of these mega, mega blockbusters that come out and they just look so flat and weird and, and not dynamic at all. And the sun in this movie, it feels so, feels like a being there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it it, yeah. it mm -hmm. matters. It really does. Um, so the special effects of the sun, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that as well. Uh, they made it feel like the sun was another, like another character. It was just always there, always just all encompassing, and uh, especially all those observation room um, scenes. Mm -hmm. oh, it, it felt like you were engulfed in sun. Just so much sun. It's <laughs> the name of the movie, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <makes> <laughs> I have a feeling our takes would be a lot harsher if they got the sunlight wrong and sunshine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Best sound effect. So I know this is kind of a, a hot take, but I actually really like it when they have sound in space. Ooh. I know that a lot of people are like, well, there's no air in space and all that stuff but I'm willing to suspend my disbelief for some fun spacey whooshes and stuff. And uh, during, uh, <laughs> during Kaneda's death scene, it, the sound effects of the sun whooshing over the shield and his mm. little light bulbs exploding, mm. I just thought they were really effective and very, they're just fun. They're like, you know, I can't even do it. <laughs> yeah. My favorite sound of the film is a very small sound. It's when Cyril is basking in the observation room and one of the other characters comes in and he turns around and blinks and the sound of him blinking sounds like a charred stick that's just been <laughs> crunched and it's like ashy it's amazing like it sounds so charry <laughs> wow I did not notice that no it passed me by too Oh, mine is a fairly small moment as well. And it's when Harvey, the character I refer to as Ross Geller in space, <laughs> when, oh, <yes. laughs> when he unfortunately misses the airlock and turns into a popsicle and shatters into a million pieces, bless him, he passes beyond the shield and is immediately destroyed by the sun and he's just this tiny fleck just to show how insignificant yeah. he is. And on the soundtrack, you just get this little synthesizer, boop, <laughs> that's it, he's gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it cracks me up. <laughs> Most funniest scene. So there's this scene in the spaceship where Chris Evans is talking about why the spaceship sounds all creaky and cracky and all this stuff. And he's saying something along the lines of, well, it's cooling off. And so the metal's contracting instead of expanding and all of this stuff. And Michelle Yeoh just looks at him and goes... I know what it is, Flyboy. <laughs> I thought that was so funny and charming. It was great. Stop mansplaining at me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, my favorite scene in the film, I think both of you have kind of talked around it, but it's, uh, it's after Capron and Mace have that scuffle and then Mace goes to apologize to Kappa. <laughs> this is my favorite as well. <laughs> and Kappa goes, oh, I, I, I'm sorry. And then Mace just says, I, I, I'm here apologizing, all right? And then he just leans on the table in silence. And we wait. 
And then Kappa says, is, is, is that the apology? And uh, Mace just says, yeah. Apology accepted. Okay. <laughs> he just walks off. It's just such a good representation of, of men trying to be civil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just emotionally inarticulate men failing miserably <laughs> yeah. to yeah. communicate with each other. It's great. And that's our Moobly Award. It's the Mooblies. Okay, listeners, it's final verdict time. Should sunshine be radiated out into the world to be admired as a heavenly body, or should it be pushed down into the darkness of the oubliette like a dying star that it is? Isaac, you picked this film. Final thoughts? I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. I'll admit that it is deeply controversial. (laughs) (laughs) It's not all there. It's not a perfect film by any means. It's not a 10 out of 10, but it's one that I think is very good and, you know, easily the best Chris Evans performance I've ever seen. And on that Mm -hmm. basis alone, Mm -hmm. come on, you got to release it from the, I, I personally feel like if it was only me, I would release it from the oubliette, despite how cold (laughs) my hand would get. (laughs) What about you, Dan? Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great film. I was a little disappointed watching it a second time because I remember the first time I watched it, I loved it. I thought it was one of the best sci-fis I've seen in a while. Yeah, watching it a second time, you do see the flaws. Despite what you say, Conrad, I love the third act. I think it's an incredible (sighs) tonal shift. I think it brings so much more energy into the film and makes it quite different to other films I've, I find in this genre. Great performances by the cast. I liked it that it was an ensemble cast as well. Mm. I really love movies that start with a character that isn't the main character. I think that's great. And so you don't even know mm. Killian Murphy's kind of the final guy until, I guess, a quarter way through the film. Great sort of intellectual look at science and space and I do have my reservations with some of the CGI effects but overall I think it's it's a standout film and I would definitely release it well it's kind of immaterial what I think at this point (laughs) because it's two votes against one I think it is a hugely influential movie and I think people perhaps don't realise how influential it is if you look at sci-fi in the noughties and you look at what sci-fi has become since Mm. Sunshine I think you can clearly see that the indie tinged deeply philosophical people going out into space to explore their own humanity has become such a staple part of science fiction, serious science fiction over the last decade, to the point that you even get Brad Pitt in a two-hour perfume commercial, (laughs) which was this year's Ad Astra. I love that one. It, it looks beautiful. The score was also groundbreaking, I think, or certainly pointed towards a different approach to science fiction. So just in the same way that Danny Boyle redefined zombie movies and fueled a rebirth in that genre, I think he did the same for sci-fi, even though not enough people saw sunshine to recognize it Mm. Um, i do think the third act is a disaster i just hate the lukewarm event horizon repeat with your eyes squinted i don't think it works at all and i'm so glad when it's over and we can get back to killian murphy facing his fate and his sacrifice (laughs) in the face of the rebirth of the sun i think that's the the real climax of the movie. I think that's the sort of 2001 journey into the heart of the sun is Mm. is pretty amazing. I do think more people should see this movie. I think it's such a shame that it it passed so many people by. So I would release it too. Yeah. yeah. Unanimous. What up? (laughs) (laughs) So fly free sunshine into the sun. (laughs) <laughs> no, that, that would be good. <laughs> Into the sunset. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, Isaac, it's been a blast talking about Sunshine with you. Thank you so much for suggesting it. Yeah, it was so much fun to be on this podcast. I'm such a huge fan of y'all. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'll be listening <laughs> in the future. Yeah. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> well, I'm sure everyone would love to hear more of your thoughts on movies. Where can they find your pearls of wisdom? <laughs> Well, uh, I got most of my pearls are kind of scattered around the internet, <laughs> but uh, the most consistent thing I do is I have a blog on my website, www.isaaclastname.com. You know, you can go there. I update it pretty frequently just with little movie reviews. You can read my hot takes on Ad Astra. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> and also your YouTube channel. Yeah, I also have a YouTube channel I do with my younger brother uh, called Siblings and Spatulas, where we uh, make uh, various confections together and show our brotherly love. (laughs) Uh, And I have a movie review channel uh, that's also Isaac Lang. This, um, okay, Uh it's not the one that's male pregnancy porn. (laughs) There are two Isaac's last names. There's, there's a second Isaac last name on YouTube. I need more subscribers to pass him up. He has more subscribers than me, and he does male pregnancy porn. I don't. So, okay. in case you were trying to figure it out, not that one. Oh, what the hell is male pregnancy porn? It's don't. You don't want to know, man. You don't okay. want to know. I have a video called The Seven Anime That Made Me Realize I Kind of Like Anime. That one's pretty good. Mm. And uh, I have uh, a really good one about The Chris Gethard Show, which is a little uh, canceled talk show that I really enjoyed and that everybody oh. should also check out. So Okay. <laughs> mm. Sounds great. Everyone should check out Isaac's work. It's fabulous. <laughs> Thank you. And if you want to check out our work and keep in touch with our exploits, you can find us as Movie Oubliette on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can also email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And if you'd like to show your support for the show, you could do no better than rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Mm -hmm. And you could also support us by going to Patreon and becoming a patron where you can nominate films for as little as a dollar or for $5 get access to lots of extra bonus material. Yes. It's worth it. It's real good stuff. (laughs) Been listening. (laughs) And before we go, I guess we, we should really mention what we're doing next episode, Conrad. Well, yes, next episode we'll be doing our Halloween special. Yeah. Halloween. Yes, our next episode will be our Halloween special where we'll be discussing a 1992 American black comedy Death Becomes Her Directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by David Kep Starring Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis and Goldie Horn. Wow, all those greats. And even more exciting, we'll be joined by a very, very special guest. Oh, can't wait. Me neither. Well, thanks for joining us, Isaac. Uh, it has been a pleasure having you on. Hope to get you on again. Yeah, I would love that. Hey, if you want to make me a third host, I'm all for it. <laughs> you might be having to get up a little bit earlier over in uh, Australia, though. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> uh, just messing around. Y'all, y'all are great. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Bye for now, everyone. Bye. Bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie Juliet. So if you wake up one morning and it's a particularly beautiful day, you'll know we made it. Okay, I'm signing out.